Frank Muir goes into politics and investigates the humor of the subject with the help of Alfred Marx. I say, do you know, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. I, I've won the election. I've been elected. <laughs> Honestly? Why did you have to bring that up? <laughs> this man went to a Harley Street surgeon for a brain transplant and asked how much it was going to cost. Well, the surgeon said, I can offer you an accountant's brain for 100 pounds, or you can have a politician's brain for 1,000 pounds. Oh, said the patient, that means that the politician's brain is much better than the accountant's. Not exactly, he said, no, just that it's never been used. <laughs> An old man who'd been a lifelong socialist was dying, and he said to his wife, Before I go, there's one thing I'd like to do. She said, what's that? He said, I want to join the Tory party. She said, join the Tory party? You, you've always hated the Tories. I know, said the old man, but if, if somebody's got to go, I'd rather it was one of theirs. <laughs> Russian trade delegation going round to British car manufacturers and astounded at the rate of speed this car's coming off the assembly line every two and a half seconds. And after they've been round, the head of the Russian trade delegation went up to the works foreman and said, We are most impressed with what we have seen here. Tell me, what hours do the men work here? And the foreman said, Well, they're coming about up past nine in the morning, they've half out of tea, two hours for lunch, half out of tea in the afternoon, finish about up past five. He said, Oh dear, if this wasn't Russia, these men would start at six in the morning, no tea. Ten minutes for a lunch, not tea in the afternoon, finish nine o'clock at night. You said you couldn't do that here, mate. They're all bloody communists. <laughs> we may all be heartily fed up with politics and with political jokes like those. But politics affect the lives of every one of us. In fact, the subject is being taught increasingly in schools and colleges. It is important that young people should have a grasp of the forces which influence their lives. But they don't have to progress very far with their studies before they discover that few people ever had much good to say about politics. Ambrose Bierce. Politics, the conduct of public affairs for private advantage. A means of livelihood affected by the more degraded portion of our criminal classes. <laughs> young student might be forgiven for thinking that these descriptions were the worst forms of politics. In this country, after all, we live in a democracy, so we must be all right. But our political freedom may be illusory, according to Gerald Barry. Democracy, in which you say what you like and do what you're told. <laughs> and here's one from James Russell Lowell. Democracy gives every man the right to be his own oppressor. <laughs> and George Bernard Shaw... Democracy substitutes election by the incompetent many for appointment by the corrupt few. Given all this abuse, the student could be forgiven for becoming a little wary of politicians. He would be well advised to listen hard when they speak and make sure he understands exactly what they're saying. My friends, in the light of present-day developments, let me say right away that I do not regard existing conditions lightly. On the contrary, I have always regarded them as subjects of the gravest responsibility and shall ever continue to do so. Indeed, I will even go further and state 
quite categorically that I am more than sensible of the definition of the precise issues which are at this very moment concerning us all. We must build, but we must build surely. <laughs> Let me say just this. If any part of what I am saying is challenged, then I am more than ready to meet such a challenge. For I have no doubt whatsoever that whatever I may have said in the past, or what I am saying now, is the exact, literal, and absolute truth as to the state of the case. <laughs> I put it to you that this is not the time for vague promises of better things to come. Or if I were to convey to you a spirit of false optimism, then I should be neither fair to you nor true to myself. But does this mean, I hear your cry, that we can no longer look forward to the future that is to come? Certainly not. What about the workers? What about the workers indeed? Grass, I beseech you, with both hands. I'm so sorry, I beg your pardon. <laughs> the opportunities that are offered. Let us assume a bold front and go forward together. Let us carry the fight against ignorance to the far corners of the earth. Uh, because it is a fight which concerns us all. And now finally, my friends, in conclusion, let me share just this. <laughs> <laughs> that was, of course, Peter Sellers doing all the voices, and it was that lovely party political speech from his record, The Best of Sellers, written by Max Schreiner, in which he managed to say absolutely nothing. <laughs> Clarence Darrow was equally cynical about American politicians. When I was a boy, I was told that anyone could become president. I'm beginning to believe it. <laughs> the system of government in this country is party politics. Though you often hear people say that all politicians are the same, there are subtle distinctions between the various parties. More wisdom from Ambrose Bierce. Conservative. The statesman who is enamored of existing evils, as distinguished from the liberal, who wishes to replace them with others. A more recent statement of party line from the Daily Mirror. Jill says she doesn't believe in all that women's lip stuff. I want a man to look after me, to make a fuss of me. I don't have any political views either. I always vote conservative. <laughs> And, and here's a fellow with a problem, a report from Reynolds News. I joined the Conservative Club because it had a bar, <laughs> and the Labour Club because it had a billiard table. <laughs> now I don't know which to resign from. The committee of both seemed pained when I suggested the club should amalgamate. <laughs> I pointed out that in the main topic of discussion they were fully agreed. How to stop these blasted French horses winning all our classic races. <laughs> <laughs> Not always new political alignments. 
Here's another extract from a schoolboy essay. Politicians turn to and fro in their perplexity, weaving and unweaving their combinations. <laughs> Increasingly, one hears of people dissatisfied with the restrictions of the existing party structures, and new parties are constantly being formed. If there's one thing I can't bear, it's when hundreds of old men come creeping in through the window in the middle of the night and throw all manner of garbage all over me. <laughs> I can't bear that. I think that's unbearable. Ghastly old men with great pails of garbage throwing it all over me. I don't think it should be allowed. I think there should be a place for those people to go. I don't think it should be my room. I'd vote for any party that would say I won't allow people to throw garbage all over me. But none of the parties seem to be particularly interested. <laughs> That's why I formed the World Domination League. <laughs> it's a wonderful league, the World Domination League. Uh, the aims, as published in the manifesto, are total domination of the world by 1958. <laughs> That's what we're planning to do. We've had to revise it. We're hoping to bring a new manifesto out with a more realistic target. Uh, how we aim to go about it is as follows. We shall move about into people's rooms and say, excuse me, we are the World Domination League. May we dominate you? <laughs> then if they say get out, of course we give up. There's been some wonderful, um, well, you have to give up once you've been told to get out. <laughs> it's Peter Cook, as E.L. Whisty, of course. Whatever his party, the prospective MP wants one thing from you, your vote. It is a precious right you have in the determining of your country's future, and in matter of voting, apathy is unforgivable. George G. Nathan. Bad officials are elected by good citizens who do not vote. Voting gives full citizenship, even in war. No writer before the middle of the 19th century wrote about the working classes other than as grotesques or as pastoral decorations. Then when they were given the vote, certain writers started to suck up to them. <laughs> in their quest for the electorate's vote, politicians traditionally make a lot of wild promises and unlikely statements. An extract from a speech printed in the South End Standard. If elected... I promise to give all my support to a new sewerage scheme because that is the lifeblood of every man, woman and child in South Africa. I do hope he was elected. Yes, politicians will say anything to get elected. Ah, uh, good morning, sir. Hi. I'm a candidate in this uh, very marginal constituency, and I was hoping that I could count on your very vital vote. Well, that depends, doesn't it? What do you think should be done about nationalisation? Uh, nationalisation. Well, don't worry, sir. We'll put a stop to it. Take away their power and hand everything back to private enterprise. What we need is more nationalisation. Mm. More? More. More. Yes. Well... That policy doesn't exclude the, the, uh, the concept of uh, more in the sense of um, more. And, and we need to increase the power of the nationalised industry. Well, uh, yes. Yes, I'd find, I'd find it hard to disagree with that. After all, when I say put a stop to it, I don't mean, um, you know, I didn't mean put a stop to it. It's just my way of saying, um, see if there is more room for expansion. And, and um, we should take mm -hmm. the banks away from private ownership. 
Ah, uh, well, uh, yes, yes. In addition to handing industries back to private ownership, we will be taking industries away from them at the same time. Uh, you can count on your vote, sir. Take them all away, that's what I say. Oh, yes, yes. That's roughly, roughly my position as well. The man who does that will get my vote. Well, well, you certainly put a well-argued case there. I, I may not have expressed my complete support for, for, for nationalisation very clearly when I said earlier that, uh, that I was against it, but I'm, I'm certainly in, in favour of... Um, well, I was in favour of, sort of well, everything you said, really. And so, can I have your vote now, please? What about a black back? Yes. Um, uh, after, after you. Well, you, you go first. What, what do you think? <laughs> David Jason, that was, and Chris Emmett, <coughs> from Jason Explanation. Once politicians have got the vote, they sometimes forget about the people who voted for them. But occasionally they do the proper thing. A personal ad from the Starbridge County Express. James Jackson wishes to thank the 600-odd people who voted for him. <laughs> I don't think it did get in. Another thing which bedevils every election campaign is the machinery of opinion polls, which try to sample and predict everything. If they were ever infallible, politics would become even more boring. As it is, statistical error still allows for a degree of doubt. What makes prediction in politics an unpredictable business is the number of floating voters. Here's a report from the Times during the run-up to the Common Market referendum campaign. In Reading, Don't Knows frequently said that a factor that might persuade them to make up their minds before June 5th was a forthcoming radio programme in which Jimmy Young will deal with the issue. <laughs> yes, the wisdom of pundits is another thing one has to put up with during election campaigns. That and party political broadcasts. And now, a massage from the Swedish Prime Minister. <laughs> a little, a very little slip from Monty Python. Come the actual election, the issue is decided by simple majority the candidate with most votes wins. Obviously, this puts him in a position of power. Benjamin Disraeli. The majority is always the best repartee. The Reverend Sidney Smith was not convinced of the justice of the system. It would be an entertaining change in human affairs to determine everything by minorities. They're almost always in the right. Anyway, a majority may be misleading. It only represents the number of voters, not their motivation. Here's a report from the Birmingham Gazette. I voted for the man I don't want to see elected, said a London man after leaving his polling station. I've been back in office for some time and have never chosen a winner. <laughs> <laughs> I want my bad luck to continue in this election. <laughs> but whatever the reasons for the casting of the votes, the moment when an election result is announced remains one of great excitement. Welcome here to Prestwick Town Hall, where we're just now awaiting the results of this very, very crucial midterm by-election to be announced. <coughs> As returning officer for this constituency, it is my duty to declare the results of the ballot as follows. Thomas Arthur Tory. Conservative. 15,673 <laughs> votes. Norman Richard Labour. Conservative, but is embarrassed by Margaret Thatcher. 16,934 votes. James Nigel Marxist. Conservative, but reads books. <laughs> 13 votes. Reginald Montmorency Nothing. Liberal. 
And they've done it. The Liberals have done it. They said all through this campaign they were going solidly for the toad vote. And could this be the start of a new revival for the party now? Back to John Sideboards in the studio. Yes, so there we are. The Liberals have scored a convincing majority there. It looks as though they've really got the toad solidly behind them. Bob Swingometer? Well, yes, I don't know about solidly, John. The breakdown of results just coming in does show that a significant number of bullfrogs abstained in this election. And several hundred newts were unable to find their way to the polling station. <laughs> to which, of course, was the very wet day, which always leads to a deceptively high turnout by amphibious voters. So I don't think we should read too much into these results. <laughs> it was Joe Kendall, Chris Emmett, Nigel Ruiz, and Fred Harris from the Burkus Way. But the study of politics should not be confined to this country. In the arena of international affairs, minor party squabbles diminish before issues of racial, religious ideological differences. And there's the force of nationalist feeling to contend with. Few international politicians seem to retain the discriminating objectivity recommended by G.K. Chesterton. My country, right or wrong, is like saying, my mother, drunk or sober. <laughs> and here's a definition by Oliver Herford. Diplomacy, lying in state. <laughs> Another thought from one Benzo de Cavour. I have discovered the art of fooling diplomats. I speak the truth, and they never believe me. <laughs> the problems of diplomats must be much greater now than they ever were because of the influence of the mass media. Slip of the tongue at a banquet, like calling Egypt Israel or vice versa, and the whole world knows about it by breakfast time. Television is now extensively used as part of the diplomatic process. And a lot of those televised smiles and handshakes between sworn enemies look rehearsed. Perhaps they are. Over now to the control box, where the director is rehearsing the momentous arrival of Mr. Khrushchev in America to meet President Eisenhower. Uh, all right, Jerry, cue the plane. All right, have the plane come down. That's, that's the way. All right, have a plane land. All right, taxi. All right, Jerry, have him stop on the chalk marks if you can. All right, he's going, that's all right, he's going fast. It's all right. All right, camera one, get in tight on the door. Get, get, in, get in tight on Khrushchev. In, in, in a, a what? A, a mustache? I don't think so, Jer. <laughs> Jer. Jerry, you're on the wrong guy. You're on the wrong... Pan, pan around. Uh, fact sheet I got says he, he should be a, a short, stocky guy in a gray suit. Uh, keep, keep... Looks like he slept in it. That's him. That's him. <laughs> All, right. All right, have him wave to the crowd. Uh, tell him there'll be a crowd. All right. Jerry, make a note. We're going to have to spray the plane. I'm getting, I'm getting too much glare off it. All right, have him, have him walk down the ramp. All right, cue the flower girl. What? Where's the little creep with the flowers, huh? <laughs> All right, hold it, hold it. Cut. Cut. Somebody find the little monster with the flowers, huh? Why has it always got to be somebody's uh, little kid? Why can't we use midgets, huh? <laughs> right, have, him get, have him get back in the plane. All right, you got the flower kid? All right, hang on to her, will you? All right, go, go, in, go in tight on... Uh, Jerry, hang on to the flower kid. She's running up the ramp. She, she's supposed to be at the foot of the ramp. All right, let her go. That's all right, let her go. All right, tell Khrushchev he's going to have to watch the door. He's going to bang, he bang the kid with a door. <laughs> oh, 
come on, come on. All, all right, all right. Have, have, have him wave to the crowd. That's the way. Have him wave his hat. And make a note, Jerry. We're going to have to spray his head. All, all right, have him take the flowers from the kid. All right, tell him to, tell him to kiss the kid. All right, have, have, him, have him walk down the ramp. Uh, don't have him skip like the kid, Jerry. <laughs> All right, have, all right, have him walk over towards Ike. All right, somebody cue Ike. Somebody take the putter from Ike, huh? <laughs> all right, have, have, have him shake hands with Ike. All right, have him shake hands with Herder. Not Ike shake hands with Herder. Have Khrushchev shake hands with Herder. All right, rest of the diplomatic corps. All right, walk back to the microphones. All right, have him start the speech. Blah, 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 blah. But Jerry, he's hopping up and down. I can't keep him in the picture, Jerry. He keeps hopping up and down. F- find out he has to go where? Bob Newhart, of course. <clears throat> Being head of state is an awesome responsibility. No wonder they sometimes do odd things from the observer. The Prime Minister spoke from the briefest notes which he penciled on his knees during the debate. <laughs> Being in a position of such eminence at least guarantees the Prime Minister a degree of fame, or should do, more from the observer. Who is the Prime Minister? The two fat schoolgirls eating crisps at a Battersea bus stop giggled nervously. One said Enoch Powell. The other said she wasn't interested in stupid politics. And anyway, only the juniors at her school did current affairs. (laughs) The seniors did scripture. (laughs) Well, Prime Ministers come and go, but some things always remain the same. Over to Michael Flanders and Donald Swan. We wrote um, for these reviews a great great many topical numbers, of course, and most of these don't have much meaning now, but one which, alas, has remained perennial is our little folk song for the Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer of the day, whoever he may be, as they dance round the stage in ever-increasing inflationary spirals. <laughs> it was, I'm horrified to see, originally written for Winston Churchill and R.A.B. Butler. Rad. But we've recast it for you, and here it is. There's a hole in my budget, dear Harold, dear Harold. There's a hole in my budget, dear Harold, my dear. Then mend it, dear Healy, dear Dennis, dear Dennis. Then mend it, dear Chancellor, dear Dennis, my dear. Oh, but how shall I mend it, dear Wilson, dear Wilson? But how shall I mend it, dear Wilson, my dear? By building up exports, dear Dennis, dear Dennis. By increased production, dear eyebrows, my dear. <laughs> that means working harder, dear Harold, dear Harold. And the workers must have more incentives, my dear. Then decrease taxation. Dear Healy, dear Healy, and raise all their wages, dear Healy, my dear. Oh, but where is the money to come from, dear Premier? But where is the money to come from, my dear? Why out of your budget, dear Healy. Why <laughs> out of your budget, dear Dennis, my dear. But there's a hole oh, in my budget, dear Flanders and Swan getting it just right as usual. I wonder how much political education does penetrate through to school children. Obviously they're aware of political change if it affects them directly. 
Here's part of a letter from the Cambridge News. What's more, my nine-year-old son reports that even school did as a better since Labour came in. <laughs> There's always a worry that political education can become too didactic and that school children will be taught principles with which their parents might not agree. Remember all the fuss about the William Tyndale School. Here's a report from the Times Educational Supplement. He told the inquiry on Tuesday that this visit was as a manager and chiefly to investigate rumours that the children were being politically indoctrinated. One rumour was that the children were being taught to play Monopoly so that they might learn to overthrow capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> One thing you can be sure is that children, like everyone else, will become aware of politics as soon as its effects start to hit their pockets. That's why the entire country is so concerned about the pronouncements made by the government's financial experts. Good evening. I'm here tonight to talk to you on a purely non-political, non-partisan Labour Party basis. <laughs> I am the Chancellor of the Exchequer, so there. <laughs> Now, a lot of people have been saying recently that our economy is in really bad shape. Really? Yes. Bad? Yes. Shape? Perhaps. But really bad shape? Now then, let's get down to brass tacks. The brass tax, which I shall be imposing, is an expedient necessity. It is essential at this time when our beloved country has its back to the wall, that we realize how heartening that can be. Only with one's back to the wall can one go forward. <laughs> You're the next to war. <laughs> People often come up to me in the street, which is in itself encouraging. <laughs> they, say, they say, look here, smarty pants. Let us not forget, look here, smarty pants is what democracy is all about. Look here, what about the pound? A fair question. A good question. And one that I intend to dispense with altogether tonight. <laughs> I put the issues squarely before you. One, the pound is stable. The horse may have gone, but the pound is stable. <laughs> Two, I wouldn't be doing this job if I weren't a trained economist and mathematician. Five, is one of non-alignment. I will not see Britain's money spent on your behalf. The trade index for the last fiscal year shows a trend that can only be described. And eight... Eight figures prove nothing. That is why I say to you that this is a time for you and I and him to tighten our belts, pull off our socks, square our shoulders and try and relax. Every one of you can make some contribution. I shall be giving you the address later. And may I conclude by saying, I laugh at those who say this country is struggling. Ha, ha, ha. We can turn the corner, if only we can find it. We will confound the Jonas, the backsliders, the dismal Jimmies, and the rest of our great people. And prove to the world that there are bigger, better, greater... Crises ahead. Good night. <laughs> Ronnie Barker. Well, that's practically the end of our political indoctrination. We'll finish with a thought from the American comedian Will Rogers. 
I don't make jokes. I just watch the government and report the facts. <laughs> and here's a little clipping that puts politics in their proper place from the Tottenham and Edmonton Weekly Hold. Because they've received so many requests for more political meetings, Tottenham Young Conservatives have formed a political section. <laughs> Next week, our subject's games. Until then, why don't you sit down? Order! Order! Withdraw! Order! Resign! 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 Frank Muir Goes Into Politics was written by Frank Muir and Simon Brett and produced by Jeffrey Perkins.